a new show on a Sunday out of nowhere? That's anarchy. That is the word of the day. And the subject of this eccentric little episode is anarchist organizational structure. So this is totally unplanned. I am traveling around, so I didn't uh, plan a podcast this week. have a lot of other very, very exciting things coming. But for now, uh, this came up very spontaneously because I called my old friend Anarch, Daniel Berrian, someone I would consider one of the most prolific anarchists alive, one of the most prolific theorists and systems thinkers that I know. And it just blossomed into a beautiful rivulet of conversation of the highest variety, of the highest source, working our way toward the better world we all know is possible. So uh, I recorded this call, actually, uh, for purely practical purposes, as the conversation shifted to discussion about practical organizing and creating a structure and a system that works and doesn't lead to uh, unnecessary coagulations of power and hierarchy. Essentially, this is a question of the, that we discussed this whole conversation, which truly blossomed from the gut, practical advice on how to organize in a non-hierarchical, efficient way, and roved into how do we create a digital system to truly modernize these principles, these ancient principles of no boss, no master, no bedtime, <laughs> into an organizational structure that works. So this is a, a profound conversation, uh, a, a beautiful meditation on uh, creating a networked system recorded in, I think, a fitting, fittingly uh, a digital grainy way in a cell phone. So bear with the audio quality, but it's an experience. Uh, this gives you a, a, an idea how anarchists actually talk to each other, how we actually make sense of the world, how we connect all these issues together when we're talking, because there's no separation between the interpersonal, small scale, and the macro scale. And that's the vision and the dream of an anarchist future is we have a system that scales perfectly from top to bottom. We have a horizontal society where there is not a big lump of power that tells us what to do and a whole mass of people way down below who have no say in how things are run. Okay. Yes. Here we go. Are being recorded? Yeah, you're being, <laughs> you're being recorded. You're being doxxed. Gotcha. <laughs> All right. So the rainbow, I think, I think I still got it all in mind. You know, I didn't derail. I didn't ADHD derail in the meantime. So um, here's the thing. When things are not formalized, what you always get is a duocracy. And people typically use this term duocracy in kind of like a favorable way. Like they say, like, you know, like, oh, yeah, man, around here, it's a duocracy. Whoever does the work, that's the person who who, who controls it, you know, like, but uh, that's actually a bad thing a lot of the time. Number one, it actually does end up creating a hierarchy. Um, usually that person does end up having a bunch of responsibilities, but also powers and decisions in their hands. Um, and they don't end up uh, actually getting everybody's consent in the process. People aren't actually involved in the decision-making process because the duocracy has standardized that that person does the task and handles these particular things, and therefore they're the only people that handle those things. And that, once again, that's kind of what it ends up being kind of a hierarchical. So one of the problems you face when that's how things have been done for a while is that nobody else really knows what's going on when you try to like start start being like, oh, cool, well, okay, uh, let's not do this as a duocracy. Let's formalize things. And what happens is at first you're going to experience that a bunch of people that weren't doing these tasks beforehand are like going to have to struggle through this process of now being like, oh, 
okay, that means I have to do things as well. I'm going to have to take some of these responsibilities, but I'm also going to be part of the decisions. I'm also going to be more active. And there will be kind of kind of like a transformational process that takes place as that goes on. But that's because the duocracy had established other structures. And this is now going to be trying to horizontalize those structures by spreading around the actual decision-making power and involving more people in the processes. So the idea you've got, you've explained to me, is basically forming a bunch of working groups. And um, working groups are definitely very, very helpful. And I think that, you know, you should, of course, not be shy in making working groups, except for if you make too many working groups, they all kind of take on a life of their own. And you want to be careful. They don't each get out of control and then become exhausting. So, like, when they kind of sometimes often blow up and then you're like, oh, we have to have a meeting for every working group. And you're like, well, I've got seven working groups. So I have seven meetings a week. And it just kind of gets out of hand. So what I always want to recommend is when you're doing this horizontalizing process, you want to create sort of this, like, council body that everybody in the organization comes to and all the decisions get made there together with everybody. And you do that as your base mechanism. Everybody comes in, you try to get as many people into the process as possible. It's kind of similar to what in Occupy they call like a general assembly, but it's actually just kind of like what a council is, a workers council or a, you know, council in locality or whatever. So like you get everybody together in this process and then that's where you make the big decisions and you delegate power. So that is to say, oh, we need somebody to do X task. Cool. We're going to say that this person should do that task. Now the responsibility is legible. Everybody can see exactly where the responsibility is. So this person took upon them to do this task. Therefore, you can also, there can also be accountability, number one. Number two, if that person's doing something wrong or they're slacking, they can be taken out of that position. They can be revoked as that's part of being a delegate. And numerous people could be delegated to that. Like you could just, instead of having like one person handle it, it's like, hey, I feel like really overwhelmed. You know, in a duocracy, they just think, well, I just expect nobody's going to help me. It's me. And then I'll set that up. And then such and such will help, you know, maybe. But then I guess that's just me, you know. Duocracies create that sort of like um, everybody kind of like taking one project or a bunch of projects in the back and then running all by themselves with them instead of everybody helping one another. Whereas in a process where you all agree to delegate certain people to do certain tasks and that that is a flexible process where it's like, oh, you want to be involved in this, but now you're kind of like done with it and you'd rather be involved in this part. That's just a fluid process. And that's a process that you all get to sit down and have a conversation about, about who's going to do what, what is there. And then every meeting they can do report backs too. Like what's going on with your working group or oh, you're delegated to do this task. How's that going? You know, not like an accusational way, but just like checking in. Like, oh, you said you were going to do, uh, you know, last week you said you were going to do X, Y, Z. What's the status on that? You know, like that, it, when you create this formal environment, it creates a place where people can become familiar with how decisions are made. And it also creates a, a sort of like foundation on which everybody can feel as if they're part of the decision-making process. So I think that's pretty well the ramble. You know, like, well, the other thing I would say is it's not bad that certain people are going to be good at certain things or want to do certain things. Like certain people are just going to be like, no, I don't want to do other tasks. I don't want to flex out of this. I like doing this part. And that's not, that's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that. The person shouldn't be forced to rotate if they like to do some other task. Um, 
and we shouldn't see that as a weakness. You know, that's Bookchin's concept of, you know, un- or a complementarity. And everybody do what they're good at, and that's cool. But also have it be a process where everybody gets to make decisions about who does what. Um, and so that's what I've seen as unsuccessful. That's what I've been trying to uh, perfect in an organizational sense since Occupy. So I've been building structures like that for like a decade. The question that I have in my mind, I mean, other than a, a lot of uh, personal, you know, tweaks and things like that to these existing systems, you know, ideas like fluid democracy where representational roles are able to shift or where there's a fluid recall process. If anybody really is like, I don't consent to this person making decisions for me, you know, I don't like the, the way you're handling this role, you know, I think you should step down. You know, there's got to be a fluid process for that, maybe even an anonymous process for that where, some, you know, if there's enough weight that goes into um, someone not liking a role or someone like not liking someone in a role, they can say, okay, let's change things up. And then that can initiate a group discussion. But yeah, um, the uh, the question really for me is how do we scale this, you know, to 300 million people? I think a lot about the structure of Rojava where they they have their, it's circles and circles. That's really how they're doing it. There you, you go. Know? The, low, the, the, the neighborhood, the town, you know, the so- council. Uh-huh. It just keeps getting bigger. I'm, but I'm also yeah. thinking about how do we actually systemize that into a physical structure, an application, a system, a network. And that's what, that's what I'm talking about. If you could get power, if you could get into the, the political machine, you could fundamentally change it in a way that it strips the power. It horizontalizes it. You know, I mean, that, of course, mm-hmm. it'd, be, it'd be a technical revolution. Mm-hmm. But um, I, yeah. I would, I've watched that movie. That's what it, that's what it comes down to, though. Is is that compartmental? Well, I don't want to call it compartmentalization. That doesn't quite get it across. But you know, what you do is you create bodies at each scale that is needed, right? Like, you know, you'd have one, you'd have a body that makes decisions at the scale of your workplace. You would have a body that makes decisions at the scale of your neighborhood. You'd have a body that makes decisions at the scale of your you know, county, and then one at the size of your city, and then one at the size of your, and so on and so on and so on, scaling up and scaling up. And at each of these, what happens is what they really are is combination. They they are representations of a combination of the smaller bodies making decisions. So, like, how do you decide if, if the locality agrees to something? Get all of the neighborhood councils to decide together, and then that is the decision you judge to determine whether that it passed at the county level. Well, you want to know if the city did it, then you get all the, you know, you get what I'm saying. You get all the, the, the bodies at the smallest level make the decision, and then you judge how many of the bodies at that level made the decision to determine whether the decision holds at a larger scale. Well, also, when you – I mean, this is, uh, this is the, new, the new new, you know, and it's like basically adding algorithms into that mix to help make sense of information and gather even more, like, rarefied forms of feedback and – consent from people you know it's not just consent that comes down to voting it's like there are like the 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 algorithms in our phones right now are listening to everything we say they're marking our language they're making all these impressions that they're learning from us and they're using that of course (laughs) because we're a fucking suicidal death cult we're an accelerationist death cult we're using that to uh target people with advertisements so that they can buy more shit. We're getting drone strikes with hyper-specific advertisements for shit we don't need. But actually, it's interesting. I, I get I get advertisements for medical treatments that 
are not that accurate, but like they're getting closer. And I just see the potential of like, if this was actually benevolent and gave a fuck about my health and could be, you know, you know, uh, added, if I could add some actual biomarkers to this, like with sensors and things like that, or even just to build like a simple way to like test my own blood, like, holy shit, like the doctor is gone, you know, sickness can be cured, like with so much more, you know, specificity diet can be optimized Mm -hmm. you know we could be getting we could have this navi this fucking little fucking assistant helping us just optimize everything we're doing this political autocorrect which is a a phrase that would get me murdered by the conservatives but had it in my head for a while (laughs) basically having this little assistant that's just helping us not fuck ourselves up you know and and managing economy ending the economic calculation problem fucking cooking an egg on that shit trying to put a chip in my brain no, I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm trying to implant the, the tinfoil into your head so that the, the Luminazis <laughs> can't get inside of you and steal your thoughts. Oh, I'm now creating the Liberty app. That Liberty app. To me now. That appeals to me. Yeah, that's a, that's a rabbit hole. But no, on the, on the fundamental basic level, like a system that's intelligently connecting people together, yeah. you know, finding like people and connecting, you know, people like yeah. you and I, it's a travesty that, you know, we have so much in common and we had to manually find each other more or less. We had tools yeah. that were never existed, never existed before the ability to express, yeah. here's my mind, here are my values and blast them around the, the world. And, you know, because I went into the <laughs> similar, uh, rat holes in Twitter, I found you and you found, you know, we found each other and connected speaking oh yeah okay sorry we're being recorded i was going to ramble about about stepping away from twitter for a while but uh, anyway (laughs) well you have to this is a really important thing you can't you can't impose a duocracy on yourself you can't exploit yourself you can't stay in a role that you don't want for too long you know even if you didn't ask for it i think sometimes people like maybe people like gnome are in that you know sometimes maybe they're like i don't i don't want this role i didn't ask to be this forever you know, but no, I, I think with that guy, especially, you know, he's he's very content in that in that humble place. Still, so humble about it. It's, it's interesting. There are some kind of people. The other thing I wanted to talk to him about to be like, well, there are. I've always thought about him as someone like the rare kind of person that I would trust with power. You know, not absolutely, but like in in that transitional sense, you need someone like that. You need someone to, to be a representative. I personally think that the the, the seat of power itself is is really you know the problem. Or are you talking about just in a cultural charismatic sense? Like people? that's yeah. The uh, the the chiefs in native tribes, there was a saying that their power only extended as far as the, the end of their tongue. So they had to convince yeah. people, and that their power they had no authority outside of that. They had to convince people of shit. And so, but even that even that is a corruptive role potentially. I mean, especially you know you got silver tongued devils like Donald J. Trump and Elon Musk, these bullshit artists that have talked their way into this, the hot seat. But yeah, there are people out there that don't want power, and that that is a, a rare a rare quality. It's very very rare for those people to be put into that position. But when they're in it, they're always the best person. But yeah, we don't need a leader or someone to tell us what to do. We need someone that can articulate or speak to what the people are saying and represent them in that way and give give linguistic credence to what is going on to articulate the vision to show people where to go like like this is what the people are feeling you know this is what we could have this is where we should go and you know everything is an act of consent everything 
you know, even violent revolution is a persuasion and it's all education. We're all educating each other. And I think in the need to build dual power and build structures to help ourselves up, you know, we are creating models that will educate and show people who otherwise don't listen to being lectured to because we all have oppositional defiant disorder from the disease of hierarchy that, you know, is, is malignantly garroting our society. We all have this base, like, fuck you for anyone in authority, which is simultaneously a, a thing driving us to our extinction, but also a hope that all people are, have an anarchist in them. You know, I think that they can in a sense. Um, I don't know if everybody's going to turn out to be an ideological anarchist necessarily, but I do think that what you can do is get a large number of people to be ideological anarchists and then spread anarchist ideas and culture so prolifically that they begin to form the foundations of people's beliefs and understandings of the world. And then it doesn't really matter whether they call themselves anarchists or ideologically anarchist once they sort of just kind of begin to intuitively absorb the cultural pretext of anarchism then that can begin to form a sort of horizontal culture, an anarchic culture of sorts. And I think well, in doing so, I go for it. It just, it just becomes normal. It doesn't have, there's no word for it, you know, like right. how so many different like natives, native peoples, their name just means the people. Right. Like, it's just how you do things. And that's why like creating a system, a physical application, reinforcement, feedback loop, feedback mechanism, you know, that people socially interact with that yeah. will engender a mode of production that will create relations of people sharing and gifting outside of the existing corporatocracy, you know, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. people will, these values will be reinforced even by people who don't share them because we have ultimately, we don't have the same ideas, but we have the same needs. And if we create a system that allows people to, to meet their needs easily, freely, people in their community that then also forms relationships and gives them other opportunities to organize their lives, to labor, to house themselves, to help, you know, to collect with other people, to solve problems, to, to meet others, to meet the social needs that are so great, that are so un, unmet and unscratched as, as the starvation plague and the, you know, the, the drought and all these other, you know, uh, needs on the hierarchy of needs, which is really, an illusion you know we we die from loneliness just as much as we die from lack of sun and water and exposure to cold in a sense of number these days more people are dying from loneliness than are dying from not getting water here in the united states at least very few people die from not getting water but lots of people die from the plague of loneliness i think so many of the cancers we experience are brought on by the body just giving up I mean, a lot of people are are very much just giving up. <laughs> There's a lot of hopelessness in society. I think oh, part I... Of, that's part. Go for it. No, you first. Yeah, that's part. That's part of what we have to do. We have to give people hope that there can be something different. Yeah, I was talking to two kids at a bar the other night. They came up to me like, "Oh, what are you, a musician? What do you look like? Why are you dressed like that?" And I just started talking about myself, about this movie, and talking about the world and. These two kids, one was like this tall, gangly, fucking hipster doofus, white dude. And he was like, climate change, what is that, bad? It's bad, right? Is it? Are we, are we fucked? You know, it's like, no. It's like, ask him, are we? Are you fucked? You know, like, 
And he's like, can we get it together? I was like, can you get it together? I just kept asking that. The other kid was like, oh, yeah. yeah. He kept nodding. He was like, yes, yes, absolutely. And the kid just kept like, his head just kept getting like shrugging further and further back where he just had no more fucking like little quips to be like, well, I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to die. Because it was just like, no, we're not supposed to die. We're not supposed to extinguish ourselves pointlessly for no fucking reason because you and I can't get it together. We can. We must. You know, and the other person was like, yeah, well, what do I do? You know, I'm afraid. I, he finally, finally said, the two other people that night were like, I'm a coward. I was like, how do we fix that? And just ask him. How do like, we fix you being a coward? <laughs> no, I, I, I asked him, I said, what do you think? Like, what, what keeps you from action? It's not you. It's, it's external forces that you have to break down and recognize are impeding you. And then when you break those forces down, you'll start to naturally gravitate autonomously into your own life. And, and then it becomes easy. Once we recognize yeah. that there are forces keeping us from, from our true nature, our true self, our role in this ecology, you know? Well, I think, once again, I suppose we're still, this, this, one's, uh, this one's fit for recording, I suppose. What I noticed <laughs> is that people uh, are afraid of responsibility to others. They're afraid of responsibility to others or afraid of responsibility. Well, actually, I just did a poll, and in a, in a sheerly technical sense, uh, uh, more people were were willing to say that categorically, yes, they have a responsibility to the, the uh, ecology. It was very high. You want to look up the numbers? I'll look up the numbers right now. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Well, yeah, that's that's a, a um, misunderstanding with things like like uh, Jason Hickel had a poll and called on a poll in his book uh, Less Is More about how people even in rural, blood red, conservative areas were like, uh, yeah, we should prioritize nature over economic growth. Obviously. Okay, like so I found the polls. Here they are. So I uh, I, I I put these on my Twitter and uh, listen, this thing's got a thousand votes. Okay, which is half of a of a of a sample size. So okay, we're getting pretty good at this point. Our numbers are getting pretty high. Um, so I said, let's hear it. Do you have a responsibility to other human beings? And uh, take numbers in mind that that four percent of these people just wanted results, so they just pressed results. So take four percent out of the total tally. Um, Seventy-eight percent said yes. Five percent said no, and then twelve percent said sometimes. Which, of course, you know that I don't know. Sometimes is a mixed bag. Some people were saying shit that I thought was kind of kind of sketchy, and other people were just making good points. But um, you know, yes, seventy-eight percent, right? Then the next one is, do you have a responsibility to the planet and the ecology? And instead of being 78.4% yes, it was 90.7% yes. And only 2% said sometimes, and 5% said no. It was vast majority of people saying, yes, they had a responsibility to the ecology, but only 78% of people said that they have responsibility to other human beings. I think if people just understand that they need a planet to live on, there's no, there's no planet B, and that well, people, their own life has value, which is really something lacking, then they well, will fight for life around them. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is once again, 90% said they, were, they had a responsibility to the planet and the ecology. So we seem, people seem to know they have a responsibility to, to the environment. Um, seems like we got problems here with people believing they have responsibility to other human beings. And if we're social ecologists, that a, that's a problem. 
Because the domination of humanity over nature roots to the domination of humanity over one another. So if we don't have responsibility to other human beings, then we cannot fulfill our responsibility to the planet and the ecology. Um, then I asked another, at another poll, I said, if yes on either, does your responsibility entail that you must act to ensure their flourishing? And then, weirdly, only 75% said yes. I don't understand what the fuck that, <laughs> what does it even mean to have a responsibility to those things, but not to have a responsibility to act to ensure their flourishing? Weirdly, yeah, that's kind of said, that's kind of like a, uh, yeah, of course we need to take care of the earth. Well, what are you going to do about it? Ugh. I don't know. Somebody else will do something. Uh, I, oh, I, I, I do know. have a responsibility. I do have a responsibility, but I don't have to act to fulfill that responsibility. The the question that the point that I got to with that my little sample size of two blokes last night was, um, and I met many other people who were aware and cared and were doing something about it. I asked this kid, "What are you capable of?" What do you do? What's your thing? What fulfills you? What makes your life flourishing? You know, he said, I make music. I said, there you fucking go. You lucky bastard. You don't have to do any more work to figure out what the fuck you can do about this. <laughs> you make that your vehicle. Put, put it to music. Put the fucking revolution to music in whatever way you can. Motivate people towards a goal with music. Ancient fucking skill. Very important. And he was like, oh, no, no, no. the other guy was like, oh, what's that going to do? I was like, has music ever changed the world? I was very emphatic. I was like, has music ever changed the world? And they were both just like, yeah, that has. <laughs> but yeah, any, you know, has agriculture ever changed the world? Has making someone food ever changed the world? You know, all of these things, maybe they don't turn the tide in and of themselves. But I have a friend who is learning how to cook. Great friend, great comrade, great teacher for me in, in my youth who taught me a lot. Um, but he's learning how to cook and he's learning uh, like the restaurant world so he can learn the supply chain so that if shit hits the fan, he knows where the food is at and he has connections to farmers and, you know, he's learning how to decentralize and horizontalize the the food chain, the food system. And of course, there's a hotbed of, of you know, people that who, there's a hotbed of, of righteous worker theory in the restaurant industry because they're among the most spat on servants in American life. Oh, yeah. They're, so essential to do anything in this world, you know, because you need people to fucking eat. And if they all go on strike, most Americans cannot feed themselves. It's it's fucking shameful. But these are our points. These are our choke points. The choke points are human needs. And, and many of them are human wants that we mistake for needs. But well, the working people have power over them. Well, I want to fulfill. That's that's one thing I want to say is that I think. I want to be clear that I want to fulfill people's wants as well as their needs, right? Like, I think it's weird because a lot of Marxists get very, very oriented around um, this idea that, you know, because capitalism manufactures false false want or their false needs that are actually wants, you know, because Marxism manufactures or because capitalism manufactures this, then communism will lead to us having less of these wants. But I think that, you know, our wants and our desires are going to be in a constant process of changing and that, you know, it's fine for us to have a bunch of things that we absolutely don't need, but we like having because that can, you know, whatever. Why not? Well, not, have a not necessarily things, things, but like we, if we transition from 
if we, as uh, Peter Joseph said, intentionally overshoot, say, agricultural production in a sustainable, regenerative way, because that's what we have to do to pull carbon out of the atmosphere and, you know, to agriculturally grow materials instead of mining and exploding things, you know, finding other ways to synthesize those materials, like growing, like I'll never miss a chance to talk about growing, you know, steel rebar out of hemp. It's possible. You can make carbon fiber. You can make cars out of hemp. He was making an airplane out of fucking hemp. So, yeah, I mean, we can grow materials by pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, solving this most pressing waste management problem and creating an abundance at the same time. So it's like, what do you want more of? Do you want more food than you can possibly eat of the highest quality? Like that is healing the world around you. You know, like what? Because, yeah, it's like we could live in abundance. We do live in abundance. People don't understand that. Bookchin talked about that in the 60s. Mind blower, you know, imagine reading that like, oh, fuck, we don't have scarcity. I was talking to this other girl last night, that that's one of the foundational features of capitalism is keeping things artificially scarce, even, you know, from the birth of, from from enclosure, you know, that's making land scarce. So you funnel people into the factory town. But yes, the, uh, we don't live in scarcity and we can create these technical systems to manage that, that abundance and make sure that things circulate where they need to go and recycle everything. And I mean, yeah, there's just a whole body of work that's needed to develop this system, this holistic whole earth system to, to not just think about how do we allocate the points that are made up in this fucking game, but how do we re- rethink how we do things? <laughs> how do we make food come out of the ground? <laughs> how do we get it to people? How do we do those higher end things like keep the internet going? Because that is a need at this point to be able to communicate globally because we have global problems. Yeah, we can do all that stuff. We should have a conversation sometime about anarchist supply chains because that was a hot topic for a bit. I have a lot of fucking answers to that conundrum. I think one thing is like the, like advanced technology is going to make the the supply chains a lot more doable. We're already seeing the escalation of 3D printing, for example. So as you decentralize the capability to produce a bunch of like basic needed parts and components and household goods and so on, then you decrease the need to concentrate that production within centralized areas, within industrial sectors and enormous factories and so on, which then means that it is harder for the capitalists to hold centralized power over that that production. Now, it's not to say, of course, that just getting everybody 3D printers is going to bring about an anarchist revolution or some shit, but like that tech, that kind of technology, I feel like, is it could be the answer to having a decentralized, very productive economy. That kind of technology exists, can be scaled, and if we put energy and, and human motivation into making it the mode of production, it will be, can be. It's not because, yeah, because it's, it's not profitable for companies to create machines that make them fucking obsolete, but we can print our own fucking action figures out of trash or whatever, you know, I got friends that do that shit. But yeah, um, that, that's essentially the basis of, of a resource-based economy is like tracking objects, making sure that they get where they're needed. The fundamental basis of supply and demand is need and have, and that's a very simple thing to calculate as long as people just log the things they have. On a, on a network, you know, blockchain, that's what it's for, right? Exactly. Like each thing is a bit, you know, you don't need to tokenize it anymore. 
It's already a so fucking. Think, it. think about think about if it was like okay, person instead of person having going to a store. Like there's nothing wrong with stores, whatever they might still exist in the in a future society. But you know, instead of somebody having to go to a store, they could just go on their whatever their fucking internet, and they could be like, oh, what I really need is like a dish set, and you know, they go on there and they're basically like need a dish set, you know, and then they do that and they can immediately just get a list of all of the people in the area that exactly. have been making schematic have been creating schematics for dish sets well, or, or just have an extra you know think about yeah, all the thrift have, stores in the world and all the right. stuff we've already made that we don't right. need new pants like there's already right. tons of awesome pants at the thrift like i get all my clothing from the thrift store people are always commenting on my duds you know because mm-hmm, there's mm-hmm. so much good stuff out there that we've already made like we don't need to keep extracting we don't need to keep expanding and growing and taking and stealing and you know, we the shit's out there, at least for us to, like, get our shit together to the point where we can viably disrupt people's economic reality by yeah. giving them the means to share. Well, one of the things that we've discovered is we started doing the really, really free markets here in Tulsa. And um, the those are pretty cool. I don't know if you've heard of those. But the really, really free markets, everybody just gets together and they're like, oh, I have an extra blah, blah, blah. And they just bring the extra blah, blah, blah. And then everybody brings their extra blah, blah, blah. And they just take freely of everyone's extra blah, blah, blahs. Right? Like, I went there one time and got, like, a green screen for my YouTube channel. So we just had to put a green, green screen. One time I was, like, the network that we had set up from this. Just I just went I just got a TV. I was like, anybody got an extra TV that is at least this many inches and has an HDMI hookup? And, like, three people were like, oh, I have one, but no HDMI hookup. HDMI hookup. And then a fourth person was like, oh, I do, actually. I'm not even using it, and it has an HDMI hookup. Do you want yeah. it? See, this and is the thing. That's, TV. That's, that's what we need to build. We need to build an actual mutual aid network. Network, yes, it's, yes. It's dummy simple. I'm not a programmer, but it's dummy simple to have people on this profile. They put up a profile. can be totally invisible or can have a front-facing persona where people can chat and do other things. It can be modulated endlessly. This can be the basis of, of a social network that's actually real. But it's if you have two tallies that people have, they fill out. Here's what I have. Here's what I need. I need. Here's where yeah. I'm at. Yeah. <laughs> and then you algorithm can, do can connect them. We tried to do that with a spreadsheet, but what we found was that the process of maintaining the spreadsheet was a huge pain in the ass. And so what that says to me is that you need to create a nice little user interface so that users can enter it. A fucking app. That's it. A fucking free mutual aid app. We just need... Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we're working on. And we have a really cool cohort cohort of people like programmers and coders. And I've even connected with like the anti-crypto crypto people. They're like, understand how to like, you know, uh, create securities for all these private interactions and like verification techniques and things that aren't money, you know, but are like the, some of the most sophisticated, you know, decentralized Internet technologies. Listen, yeah, lots I just thought of, of lots something. of cool people. Go ahead, hit what it. What we need to do, we need to have like a Discord or some kind of place. I don't know. Programmers got their way, their own way of doing things, but we get a place which is like all of the anarchists and libertarian socialist programmers. We just get them all in one fucking place, and we don't have any of them like compete. Like, oh, I want my project to be that. We just, everybody's projects are just like there, and they're talking about progress in their projects. And then what we could do is that as we know programmers that want to do stuff, we could like plug them into that server, and they could be. Like, oh, I want to go work on dual power app. Oh, I want to go work on Magnova. Oh, I want to go work on blah, 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 one of these projects. And it could be a way for us to funnel programmers into these projects. Yeah, of course. And that's, that's exactly what we're doing. Like, start, I started a group with, like, all the programmers, or not all, but, like, 
probably 10 or 10, maybe something like that. And I'm adding people regularly, like, oh, we got a cybersec girl in fucking Germany, you know, like, like there's all kinds of people around the world doing this stuff. There's not, like, programming is so powerful. They don't have to be anarchists, you know, like technology itself is a really powerful motivator because people are transfixed by novelty. And I, I think people like Marshall McLuhan, people like, um, let's see, I mean, Jacques Fresco obviously, obviously understood it so well, talked about how technology affects people's minds. Jeremy Rifkin talks about how every economic transition in history was precipitated by a change in communication, technology, and energy infrastructure. And so we have the first one is, you know, obviously the other three are, are coming or are possible. But yeah, we have technology in our hands. And so, yeah, we... Like, think about, and this is another, like, on the pessimism of, like, oh, people can't change. Fuck you. Like, how quickly, when we went from the fucking Motorola flip phone world to the fucking glossy, fuckable, beveled edge iPhone smartphone world, <laughs> like, think about how quickly your moms and pops went from being, like, you kids in your damn Nintendos to being addicted to their phones like anyone else. So, like, oh, culture yeah. was changed irrevocably. Oh, yeah. No doubt. No doubt, my friend. But yeah, we got more work cut out for us. This is a great little call. I'm going to release this as a podcast because I didn't do one this this week. <laughs> I didn't do one. <laughs> <laughs> no, this yeah. is groovy. Love you, buddy. Um, let's let's let let's let's talk more. Let's keep skill of cooking and scheming and plugging people together because that's that's the oh, work, yeah. really. So let me just, say like, though, we got to we got to focus in on one project and really nail it. You know, that's the key, my friend. That's how that's success. You know, we gotta gotta we gotta make sure you finish what you start. So you tell me what we're gonna get plugged in on, and we'll we'll do that shit. Well, that the first project that we're gonna get finished on, we're gonna stick out. We're gonna really fucking zone into it is being friends, oh, <laughs> having fun. Oh. That's creating so a mutually sweet. assured feedback loop of positive Whoa. reinforcement and affirmation that keeps us both juiced. so great. <laughs> this is fucking great. I'm already hyped. I'm so excited. Me too. All right. Anyway, see ya. See you on the World Wide Web. Bye. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at Anarch YouTube and follow his YouTube, of course, at Anarch YouTube, some of the best content out there. Truly a great, great inspiration, a teacher, a friend, someone I value to the ends of this earth, someone that we're, we're, we're working hard to build something new with. So, yeah, support us, support Anarch, and let's come together and build something. Let's build this thing we're talking about. Reach out to us. Reach out to Moneyless Society. Email us at contact at moneylesssociety.com. Or go to our website, find the volunteer portal. I will link it in the description and join our infrastructure. Join our signal groups. Join our working groups. Let's get together and do something about it. Don't keep doom scrolling. We spend all of our time in these digital worlds and we're not working to use these digital technology, this amazing media ability for us to interact with people all over the world and organize and create these decentralized structures that just naturally engender a better world and value system. What the fuck is wrong with us? Come on, y'all. Get with it. Reach out. Let's do it. It's a lot of fun. And there's a hell of a lot of work to do. See you on the World Wide Web. I'm traveling because, as I've talked about in a few other episodes, I've been cooped up in a box, feeling the weight of the world and trying to go further in myself and purify my own system. It's been a long, slow build-up to just stepping out the door and being swirled into another whirlwind of adventure and experience, traveling around, connecting with revolutionaries, speaking truth, seeking truth, 
and living my own life in my primary experiment in autonomy, living without a master, which is a very fine line between chaos and order, total structure, total submission to a straight and narrow path that leads ahead in one direction, and a sprawling mess of opportunities. The line between being marginalized and staring out at the horizon of all possible worlds shining ahead of you.